Welcome to Meet the Operators. The frightening thing is it is easier to get a divorce in the United States than to get a venture capitalist off of your cap table and out of your company. <laughs> and, 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 and so like, you would never meet a girl or meet a man and decide to get married uh, after the first date That's right. and go, I'm going to make the 20 I mean, it's like The Bachelor. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> most of us do not try to do The Bachelor to find a spouse. That's a great point. And, and there's no reason that you would want to do that for an investor. Now, all right, Josh Elman, welcome to Meet the Operators. Thanks, Doc. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. I know we had to reschedule a couple times. Both one my fault, one maybe your fault. I tell you, the winter sickness was hitting it all oh, of us. Man, brutal. it's brutal. Petri dish of a household. <laughs> um, so I want to start and just walk people through your background a little bit, because we were talking about earlier, man, it's obviously I've known you for a while, but it's one of the more fascinating backgrounds in the Valley. So you want to, can you just expound a little bit on kind of how you got started in all this? You know, I graduated from Stanford in 1997. I was in Symbolic Systems, which is this like awesome mix of computer science, linguistics, philosophy, it's amazing. And, and psychology. And, and I always was like, how do we make products that will affect hundreds of millions of people in their lives? And like, that was my goal, and that was what I wanted to go work on. And I didn't feel like a founder back in 1997, so I kept saying, what companies do I think can get really, really big that were still smaller and, and private? Um, I grew up in the Seattle area, so I, I first went to Real Networks. Mm. I'm in Seattle, and I thought, audio video on the internet. Everyone, feels like this should be a thing. Everyone <laughs> used a real player. And, yeah. That's right. And, you know, over the couple of years I was there, the real player flew to, like, hundreds of millions of people were using real player every day on their Windows PCs yeah. to listen to audio, watch video. Got to build a thing called Real Jukebox. That was yeah. where you ripped all your, your CDs and the MP3s and got to, those were 85% of the original content on Napster came through Real Jukebox. I remember, I think and, I used it that way. And, and, <laughs> and it went on Napster for free. You know, and then, and, and it was amazing. And then I just realized like Real Networks might not be the company that was gonna make it all the way. And I, I thought I needed to learn some business decisions because mm. there was a bunch of people who did better made business decisions based on spreadsheets and modeling and business analysis yep. that as an engineer and even though I was running a, a pretty big product engineering mm. team by that point I was six years in responsible for like the real player client I was like I mean, I'm not making the right business decisions and we're not as a company and, and I'm not learning that so I thought I wanted an MBA so I applied very very last minute got into Berkeley uh, for the MBA program moved back down to Silicon Valley um, and and ended up realizing, oh, actually, to make business decisions with my product and things, I just need to leave Real Networks and work at a company that sort of operated in a different model, operated in a model that was that was very product and engineering driven. And that was kind of what the Google had pioneered, when sort of Silicon Valley was a lot more about versus the Seattle model was more Microsoft model, which was the MBAs make a lot of business decisions and product engineering builds it. And this is, again, you got to remember, this is, this is 2001 when Don't Be Evil from Google was like a very novel concept yeah. because we thought of software companies as evil. That's right. So I started business school, got really excited about social networking, sent some cold emails to LinkedIn and Friendster, which was the other big social networking company. Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, had done the same major as me. Yeah. And, uh, he was, and, and LinkedIn responded because it was Symbolic Systems at Stanford and they thought there was a connection. I ended up dropping out to be you know, one of the very first product managers, about 15 people at the company. And so how, the how big was LinkedIn when you yeah. joined? 15 people. Wow. Yeah, so it was, you know. Which office were you guys in? We were in a teeny little office on El Camino Real in Mountain View. I think I know. Behind a Pizza Hut yeah. that's now a Togo's, or it was a Togo's, <laughs> now it's a Pizza Hut. Um, uh, and, and it was like, hey, if we make a big professional network, we'll get a ton of people there. I got to work on a ton of early growth stuff. I mean, it was, it was an incredible experience. After a couple of years, I realized that HR 
software and an HR network in a recruiting network wasn't quite my passion. And I decided to follow my passion to go back to something more consumer. We found a company called Zazzle, mm-hmm. doing on-demand custom products. And the idea was, we called it Bits to Atoms. Anything you could take and imagine and create a digital image, you turn to a physical product. They're Stanford guys. I remember yeah, no, they, were, they were Stanford like 2001, 2002 yeah. era. Um, and, and they just had this amazing vision, as I said, to go from, from bits to atoms and let everybody be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I ended up spending two and a half years there. I was running product by the end, and we were, you know, grew the company four or five X in revenue into tens of millions of revenue by the time I left. And you know, it was a pretty incredible experience. Um, and I realized, though, that there was a lot of challenges in, like, the bits to atoms and mm-hmm. the marketplace model. And, and we weren't quite making all the decisions to, like, build the great marketplace versus build more products. And I thought, man... I kind of want to go work at a bigger company because now Zazzle had been 20 when I joined, like they 15 when I joined, and I was like, I was like, let me go big. So I went to Facebook, and it was about 500 some people, and and I had this list, and I was like, the Facebook platform, if this works, it's the most important thing. This for is the pre-connect. This is pre-connect. Yep. So Facebook platform launched Be- in early 2007. Is Beacon out? No. Beacon had just launched okay. right when I was interviewing at the oh, company. Goodness. Beacon launched and yep. it didn't go well. People who listen to this might not even remember Beacon. Oh, We're dating and, ourselves. And the yeah. Facebook platform canvas made it. But like, they, like the history of how all this stuff worked to get us here is incredible. Yeah. Um, but uh, Beacon had just launched, and then I joined in early 2008 at this interesting time where the company was like, huh, Beacon didn't work. Mm. This is probably the first, maybe the only thing in Facebook's history that has kind of slowed the company down and sort of felt like, whoa, a yeah. little bit of a crisis moment. Because so many things at that company have gone so well. They had plenty of failures too, and plenty of success, but like so many things have gone so well. But when I joined, it was this sort of moment of uncertainty. Mm. Microsoft just invested at $15 billion valuation, yeah. and Beacon launched, it was going to change advertising, and then it didn't. Mm. And and they had to figure out like what the next things were. Sheryl yeah. Sandberg started the same day, so I got to watch this massive oh, cultural change yeah. happen at Facebook because really the business side just became really, really effective. And yeah. it kind of went from like, what are we doing to like, I mean, she just built an incredibly effective organization. And I got to work on the platform, which was in the middle of chaos yeah. of the consumer internet. Everyone realized this was the fastest way to grow a company that had ever been invented. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet, they were spam. They were causing so much spam and noise within the Facebook system mm-hmm. that Facebook users were saying, "Get this stuff out of my feed. Get this stuff out of my way. I don't want to hear about my friend who wants me to join another game or another app." And we started thinking about how do we, <coughs> how do we take the platform and go work with the the biggest companies in the world? Why won't CNN build on our platform? Why won't eBay and Amazon mm-hmm. build deeply in our platform? When we build social experiences, we knew they were so much better. Yeah. But we we're, we were like, how do we make the New York Times feel social? And back in 2008, that was like a novel thing. We went around, we were like, we started this thing called Facebook Connect, and we were like, please add Facebook buttons to your website and make your site more social. And they all looked at us with like, you're a little Facebook, we're big, New York Times, <laughs> CNN, eBay, Amazon, whatever. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll talk, we might put you on a, like a very side corner part of our site to experiment with it, which like CNN did with some stuff yeah. around the elections in 2008, but they wouldn't kind of make it core. And, and you know, one of my missions was really how do we get a couple of these real core examples that prove that making websites more social will really help them grow, mm-hmm. help them transform, help change their traffic patterns. So, yeah. so they'll start to rely, you know, our goal in early days was can we make Facebook the number two traffic source to a media company? Because mm-hmm. we were like, it's going to be a long time until we touch Google, but if yeah. we can eliminate everything else, yeah. so it comes down to Facebook or Google as your traffic source, that was really important. Interesting. Um, I worked very close with like Huffington Post, yeah. you know, side by side with the CTO at Huffington Post, um, where we kind of tried to redesign the Huffington Post to be social, mm-hmm. and it worked, and it oh, worked, worked fabulously well. for them. I mean, yeah. like, yeah. And, and just like, and then some, 
and and that was like the beginning of like can we make the web more social uh. I get to this point at Facebook um, I thought I was joining to be more in a product management role and my role at Facebook at that time was a little bit more platform evangelism sort of a product manager externally to work with other companies to help them understand how to do stuff and I, I missed that core product work yeah. and, and I started thinking about okay where could I go do great product work in 2009 Twitter was the one company that was just like you know if I can't work if I can't quite do the product work I want to do at Facebook um, at the role I'm in maybe I could go to Twitter and do it and so I got really excited about Twitter and over six months got to know the team a little bit and they ended up you know um, uh, offering to hire me kind of late in 2009 and and said you know come over and help us figure out how to make Twitter grow you know I think um, Ed Williams said when I when I started he was like everybody signs up but not many stick around mm -hmm. how do we fix that yeah, how big was Twitter at the time for, for those that so company-wise Twitter was about 80 people small um, you know Twitter had had easily had you know tens of millions of people try Twitter yeah. I think we were somewhere you know 10 million actives yeah. plus or minus oh, no, you know, and stuff down. Like, wasn't on ESPN every night in sports centers no it was definitely yeah. not in the media all the time although it was talked about a fair amount yeah. the way I think about it is bloggers and media people love to talk and the when they were not doing vlogging or media, they were talking on Twitter. And then when they were doing vlogging media, they were like, on Twitter, such and such said. Yeah. On Twitter, I heard this. So they were already spreading it, even if it wasn't quite as big as it is now. And that really helped Twitter sort of get reach. Oh, yeah. You know, even by 2009, a bit on Oprah, a lot of people in the U.S. had heard of Twitter. Sure. Almost as many as had heard of Facebook. But then you said, which do you use? And Facebook's numbers were 10, 20 times. Twitter's, you know, what people would sort yeah. of admit to using, uh, <laughs> anime, and Facebook's only grown since then too. Um, but it was really fun. I mean, we we tried to really figure out. You know, we did a bunch of interesting analyses. Why do people who use Twitter use Twitter? Mm. What is it that hooked them? Yeah. And one of the challenges was a lot of people heard about Twitter as a place to broadcast, and they had nothing to say. Didn't want to broadcast. They're not people like you going out and doing podcasts and interviews <laughs> and 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 writing lots of blog posts. Most of the people like didn't want to do that, and especially in 2009. But they loved to listen and mm -hmm. hear from people they cared about and be in this flow. And, and it turned out that when we got you following the right things on Twitter, mm -hmm. I call that tuning your Twitter, mm -hmm. people loved it. This is the ladders of engagement you were this, talking This about. is sort of the ladders of engagement. It's yeah. how, to, how do we get you to understand that like Twitter's this unique thing with a tweet that comes from a person. Yeah. And if you follow people, you get better tweets. And if you check your timeline pretty often, every time you come back, it's new and it's fresh. That was kind of like step three. Yeah. Step four was take it with you. Can we, you know, back then you'd start on the web, because yeah. back then most people had the web. Can we get you install any mobile app, whether it was on your Blackberry or on your, you know, Razor, your very early version iPhone. Yeah. Um, can we get you to take Twitter with you? And then, and then it was like, now can we get to participate, reply, favorite, like. Mm. Then step six was, can we get you to, um, can we get you to tweet? Mm -hmm. Like, so we had to get you to understand all these things about Twitter before we even tried to like get you to tweet. Yeah. And then it was like, can we get you to understand search and hashtags and some of these like concepts of Twitter? Mm -hmm. Like, you could get pretty far on getting value out of Twitter without even understanding some of that. And then the last step was like, if you really love Twitter and you're tweeting everything else, how do we help you gain followers? Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's sort it. of the one percent. Yeah, but that's like an eight-step ladder yeah. or a peer new engagement or whatever you want to call it that like. My goal was like, how do we just get people over the first couple? How do we get you to understand what a tweet is, mm -hmm. understand the following makes it better, understand that coming back pretty often, if you're following the right people, Twitter is amazing. Yeah. And, 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 and so we spent all of, you know, most of my time over my two years at Twitter was build, trying to you know, work with the team to build features to drive that. And so let's pick that apart a little bit, because okay. you've, you've written amazing stuff around kind of how do you break those down, and we'll link to that so people can, can find yeah. that. But what I want to kind of try and peel back a little bit is the day-to-day -day of how you, I mean, 
probably you can you can can you see the forest when you're in the trees type yeah. of thing, right? So now that you've taken a step back and you think about how that evolved, walk us through kind of how the team operated. Like how what yeah. what was your day to day, week to week as as you were figuring this, this these ladders out? You know, it's funny. I mean, uh, there were there were really two different things going on. Um, so I started with a growth team that was really me, a designer, and three engineers. We eventually had you know, maybe 10, 12 engineers. Okay. Um, you know, and then you know over time it grew a lot more than that. Um, and, and like, we our job was all we can do is build one feature at a time. Let's try to build the highest order feature or set of things we can do mm. that will move the needle on growth. That will set us up for the next experiment. That will set us up for the next experiment. Uh, and, and so we, you know, when the very first thing when I joined was we, Twitter used to have an SUL, a suggested user list. Sorry, I think mm. it was called the SUL for short. Um, that had four, like 800 random people that These were These are the pulled. top 20 people you should follow. And they were, well, they were yeah, just showed us 20 time. people to follow. Yeah. And most people just clicked either select all or select none mm. and would get 20 people. And then you randomly found 20 people. You didn't curate it. You didn't think about it. You actually don't even know who most of those people are. Yeah. You'd have this random noisy Twitter stream that wouldn't actually help you understand it. So the first thing we did was we, we changed the model that when you sign up, you had to self-follow. Mm. We'd show you interesting people. We try to organize them around topics. We try to do a lot more algorithmically. So it wasn't just these random people that sort of people before me at Twitter had picked. And we went through and, and created these new algorithmically generated topics where you could follow individuals. Mm. And so by forcing you to follow and you sign up for Twitter, it wasn't that those were exactly the right people to follow or we tried to do our best with people you'd recognize. But we're really trying to teach you if you follow your Twitter gets better. If you don't follow, it's not Twitter's fault it sucks, it's yours. Mm. Like, you've not figured out how to follow the right people. Maybe we haven't made it easy enough. There's a lot of things there, but fundamentally we want to do that. So, so the first step was coming up with this narrative that we have to teach you how to follow and we have to build better tools for following and, and actually building those with okay. the team. First thing we built was new onboarding flow. We tried to build a new homepage to educate you better. We tried to build a Facebook app. The Facebook shut down that would let you <laughs> finally connect with your Facebook friends. That's a separate funny story that, that, that didn't really work. We tried to go rebuild user search so that we, when you typed in, I like the Seattle Seahawks, it wouldn't just show you the account for the Seattle Seahawks, but it would show you players and coaches and mm. reporters. and So you could kind of search by topic a little bit. Yeah. We went and built a user recommendation system so that if you'd at least followed a couple people, we could recommend you more to follow. Mm. We tried to go rebuild our address book so that when you imported your email contacts or eventually your phone contacts, we could match you up with other people who'd imported you or who they matched up against. Are, so you, look, are you looking at this data in real time as it comes in? How did you, what was the... Was it like an obsessive email check at the time, or how were you kind of? We were doing email check. We were doing email check at the beginning, yeah. based on email accounts, because back in 2010, still web email was yeah. the better place to get address books yeah. than, than phone. That's obviously completely shifted now. But we were trying to match people up. So basically, we're, basically we had this roadmap of multi years mm. of tools we need to build to better match you up, mm. and and we just tried to do one at a time and knock them down. You know, we had to build better email. Like Twitter didn't send many emails, so. Um, I'll come back to that because we actually did some interesting stuff where I tried to build big projects and A-B tests, sort of think of portfolio theory where you build a little bit of big projects and at the same time you always have in like a quarter you have one or two big projects and you always have three to five small A-B tests or clean up an email mm -hmm. or try to reformat this thing to see if we can design it to perform better. Yeah. But those micro optimizations are great at scale because you want them all. They will all make it better and compound over time. Yeah. But you have to be doing the big things too. Mm -hmm. And like more important is to do one or two, try to like big swings to really change the trajectory yeah. along with some of those small things. So that was kind of how I oriented that team. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is we had a data team that was shared across all of Twitter, but they, I got to work with them a lot to try to figure out 
how do we understand our users better and how do we make them grow and how do we even we're building the A-B testing framework like <laughs> like we were kind of you know back in 2009 tools like Optimizely and Mixpanel and Amplitude and everything didn't even exist sure. so we were building and hacking together those things the best we could on our own data warehouse and then we were doing some deep research to understand what was that magic moment how many people did you have to follow what was the right topology of an account between mm -hmm. people that you followed and people who followed you back and having the right mix of celebrities and the right mix of famous people. Mm -hmm. We were trying to understand all that so that we could build better features that guided towards that. Mm -hmm. So I had a data team that was just an amazing set of people who were digging in to understand that. And then we sort of had a relevance team that was really trying to start to build algorithms and data science on top of Twitter. Mm -hmm. If you think of the core Twitter, there's no data science at all. I shoot out a tweet, everybody who follows me gets it. Mm. Like, it's as simple and brain dead as it could be. There's a lot of great technology that makes that happen at scale, sure. but the basic thing is I say something and everybody who follows me gets it. Yeah. But with the data team, we were like, how do we now use the fact that that's happening to start to derive enough meaning we can build other features. So we, that's how we came up with our user recommendation system. Mm -hmm. We started to come up with algorithms around lists and top tweets and on our search relevance in order to try to make all this stuff go. So those are the couple of teams that I got to work with to, to make all this stuff happen. And was, you know, obviously it, it's worked tremendously well, but as you think about the culture of those teams and stuff that kind of defines them, as you look yeah. backwards to, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn, did you, ha did you have something different at Twitter? What, what was the... It's a fine line between you know trying to be obviously successful yeah. and move the needle on the company, but also be okay with failure, right? Because you yeah. want to experiment. So how did how did you manage the team to kind of straddle that line? You know, that's a great question. Look, uh, the first thing I'd say is the exciting part when you're working on these problems of like how do we get to scale was actually really consistent at all three companies. Mm. Um, and, and a word that I've used to describe is what I call deliberate action, yeah. which is every time we went and we're shipping a feature, deciding to build something, deciding to invest in something, we're very deliberate about it. You know, I don't want to use deliberate as we talked about it forever, but we were very deliberate. Like we were like, we're going to try this because we think this has the best chance of having this kind of outcome. And so because we could describe the outcome and describe, you know, what we hope to gain from it, we would say, let's go give it a shot. And the then we would take lots of actions. Like the reason I call it deliberate action is you have to be taking lots of actions. And so we would do these things and we would ship them and we would push them out. The second thing that was really important to all three companies was looking back and going, oh, we shipped it. What happened? Mm -hmm. Because how often have you been on a team or a company? They're like, all right, we shipped it. Party. What's next? <laughs> of course. And, and if you don't do that look back two weeks later and say, okay, we actually made these assumptions going in, you know, did it work or did it not? You'll never learn. Mm. You know, one one big failure, like the, the first project we did at Twitter was really successful, it was rechanging the onboarding. We added steps, we made it longer, but we made it cleaner, we made users have to self-tune. We could look back at people's behavior a week after, a week later, after they signed up through this flow versus the old flow, and we could immediately tell we had, you know, a 20 to 30 percent bump in activity one week later because the people who went through that flow were just much more likely to get activated and the number of people who imported address books were still the same even though we made it a later step mm. the number of people who who we had originally built a little like didn't find anybody you're looking for in the new user flow search now and find people and add them before you go into the product mm. that step was like amazing that was kind of a like throwaway step mm. it turned out to be amazing you know the people found over three people they searched like over six times and found wow. three people and they were signing up because they had, well, what we forget is they came to Twitter with something in their mind already. Yeah, there's a hook of some sort. And so they had some reason so we were like, you didn't find it through our suggestions, just type in what you were looking for and <laughs> you can do it. Um, 
So like, that was a great look back. Then the next feature that the team and I worked on was we redid the homepage. We were like, let's make the Twitter homepage much cleaner. We're going to show some tweets up there. We're going to make it dynamic. We're going to feature different things. And by making this homepage so much better, a lot more people will sign up. You know, it didn't work at all. <laughs> it, it literally, we, like, we actually A-B tested it. And like, I think it had like a 0.2% lift of getting people to sign up. And, and what, what I learned from that was, oh, changing the home, they already come to the homepage with so many expectations that's not, for, for at least the way that Twitter was so popular in the world, that was not a place that people wanted to go learn about Twitter. Mm. They were going to sign up or not sign up anyway, and if they signed up through either one, they were going to be active or not based on how the onboarding did, mm. not how the homepage did. And so, you know, I'm not sure if that's always true, yeah. but it was certainly, for a company that had as much external discussion about it, the, there were so many preconceived notions that the homepage didn't do much. And if you looked at the history of Twitter's homepage, we ended up A-B testing it all the way down at some point to, like, sign in, sign up, and nothing else. Like, there's, like, a picture. I a think. picture, yeah, yeah. two sentences in the description, <laughs> sign in, sign up, and nothing else on the page. Because it just turns out anything that you could click on or distract you or take you away from going down the flow, the flow that would really convert you as a new user yeah. is actually turned out just to be a, a sink as opposed to something additive. And so... So like that was the case though. Like like so I joined Twitter, the first thing worked, the second thing was a fail. Mm. <laughs> like they're like, you know, is this kinda good? But but no, the point was I think that we wish were honest and assessed and like carefully looked back. Yeah. You know, at everything we did. And as long as you keep doing that, you get enough right, you know. You know, what's funny in growth is if you're in A B tests, you need a lot of them to hit because they're all micro optimizations. Mm. But if you're working on big features you think can have an impact and you get one right, and it caused a real lift, you've made such a bigger difference yeah. that you want to keep swinging. You know, a baseball, a great baseball hitter, you know, hits 300. That's like one-third of the time they get a hit, mm -hmm. and they're, you know, over 300, you're excellent. So what do you consider a good, you know, batting average for a growth team? Two, you know, one out of th three, one out of four. That, that of things that you bet on that yeah. make a real difference Big in growth, that things. really shift your growth trajectory. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about hiring for a second. Okay. So these are very, you know, growth in itself is a relatively new term in the mm -hmm. sense it's only been around probably in the last five years, I guess, in the Valley. But people have been doing this a lot longer than that. You've obviously been doing a lot longer than that. And, you know, at the core, it's kind of marketing, analytics, product, data, all kind of packed together, right? But that's it's a very unique kind of individual that can, can do this successfully. What do you look for in those type of people? Like when you're interviewing, what's yeah. the first things that stand out to you typically? Yeah, or did, sorry. No, uh, do look. I think the best gr people who do growth understand how to build good products, how to want want to put products in the hands of users, and how to understand data to help them deliver how to you know build new products. What's interesting about this growth term, and it feels all new and fancy, <laughs> is it's really traditional marketing with the recognition that building new features can actually be part of marketing. We used to live in a world where products said, we know best, we're going to use a little bit of data and mostly our instinct and just build a great product. Mm -hmm. And then somebody over there at marketing is going to make sure they put it in the hands and they were very analytical about how they did marketing. Mm -hmm. and, and marketing people would then say, oh, we need a feature, we need a landing page. So the engineering team would grumble and give them a landing page. And then they'd say, we need another landing page. The engineering team would grumble and say, okay, this is your last one. And so you'd be in this world like, please, sir, may I have a landing page? And it was like this horrible state because marketing and product always felt separate. Yeah. And when you actually combine them and you're like, oh, we're going to be building a whole bunch of landing pages for different campaigns that are going to drive growth, 
the engineering team on that says, that's great, we're going to build a system that just spits these out really easily mm -hmm. so we can enable the team to be really creative and successful and not have to do new work every, every single time. And, and like that's the shift when you combine these skills, when you combine product and engineering thinking about building features, building new software, building things that, that matters to users. Mm -hmm and separates it. So I really look for the same, ultimately, I look for the same skills I want to see in a great product manager, mm. which is, do you understand user needs, data that tells you about user needs, and how to work with a team of engineers to build something great. And if you understand that, you should be able to do great work at growth and great work at, at building the next cool feature. Mm -hmm. The only difference is, when you're building something in growth, you have to think about the user who doesn't get your product yet. Mm. So many times when we when, when we think, oh my gosh, look, if Instagram only had five more filters and video and whatever, like you already love Instagram so much you're trying to add on to Instagram. Yeah. And that's a really important skill. Yeah. Now, how do you design a growth feature or an onboarding feature or a distribution feature for the dude who doesn't use it, mm -hmm. who has never used it, who might have seen an Instagram picture once but didn't understand that it was something they could use every day? Yeah. Like the growth mindset, all it says is, how do I get that? How do I design for that person and build features that get them totally hooked on my product? Mm. And so if you think of it that way, I find it like great. The best product managers should also be able to be great growth product managers mm. versus it's truly a specialized skill. Yeah. But people who come from marketing, SEO, analytics who've been doing that can also be great if they can learn to work with engineers. So as you suss this out of people, what's you, do you have a a favorite question that you use is you're kind of looking at oh, how do I find these people, right? You interview, you mean yeah. you get resumes dropped on your doorstep all the time, but what what do you once once they hit that bar, what makes them stand out to you? You know, the really it's case studies. Mm. Um, when I'm doing interviews, like I really look for how they talk through case studies mm. and how they think and how they analyze problems. And so the two best questions um, that I like to ask the first is I try is what product do you like? How did how did you find out about it? How did you onboard? What do you think could have made that happen faster, sooner, better? You know, what was perfect? Mm -hmm. You know, what's great onboarding? I figure anybody who's thinking about that stuff a lot can then come and do it within a company. Um, the second thing is just look for kind of like raw understanding the big scope of business. Because one of the key things of understanding growth is understanding what habits you're actually driving users to and how that end up generating revenue. Yeah. Um, I had this great product manager question that I used to use all the time when I was interviewing product managers that, that might be a little bit dated today, but it, it used to be basically, you know, back in the 2005 to 2010 era when we were both building a lot of companies, um, um, I would say email is this thing that everybody says you can't make money on. Mm -hmm. Yahoo says it barely makes money. Gmail says it barely makes money. AOL doesn't really make money on email. Hotmail doesn't really make money. So email is this sort of like free thing they all give away. And yet if you talk to any single commerce company, they will tell you the email is their number two channel after search. Mm -hmm. Like, if you owned an email product and they say it's their number two channel after search, what could you build that would help you tap into that revenue in a really big way that would be great for your users? Mm. And that was sort of my question. Like, I had some answers in my head that still nobody ever really built, which was like, like a shopping starting point inbox. Yeah. It was like, for all these things that I go subscribe on email, actually organize them for me so that when I'm going through my email, they're somewhat distracting, yeah. but actually, you know what, wait, I kind of want to go shopping. What are the deals that are available to me right now? Mm -hmm. What are the personalized deals that were sent to me? What are, the, what are the companies that I've actually given them my email address to welcome them into my inbox? Yeah. But I could then go to all those email companies and be like, look, those people, you already have their email address? Yeah. I'm going to give you a better feature to reach them. 
design your stuff like this and I will organize it in this perfect way. Huh. And then can you actually go and give that to users? Right? And that's just like, like Did anyone give you that answer in an interview? I, a couple times. Yeah. Those are great people that, that, that I think you know end up being like strong hire yeah. Yeah. forget if that actually converged. Like Google has now like shunted it over into like a promotion tab, right? See this is like the irony is like yeah. Google has now made it like a ghetto. They have the they have the data to actually do it better. Yeah. Right? They 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 put the, the email in your box which huh. is like seventeen promotions. Yeah. But if they told me what the top ones were, that would actually be I feel like they've yeah. made it they've made the promotions inbox a ghetto of your yeah, email as opposed to an actual like shopping starting point yeah. like think about it when you want to go shopping on the internet like what stores do I like or I go you just go back to Google and you type search for Gmail maybe that's what they want but in general I, I think like here's the latest 10 things and like new products you might not have found you know look I don't mind when Best Buy tells me about interesting new products or deals yeah. except 99% of the time, I'm trying to go through my email to figure out what's going on in the world. Yeah. It's irrelevant. But like, I'm like, oh, wait, I want to go buy some electronics. Why couldn't that be organized somewhere just for me? What I always do is I search for, because, I again, like you, you, we're trying to manage our inboxes, and those things get unwieldy. But if you, if you get to Amazon basically sends out a monthly best books list. Yeah. Right? I never have time to actually buy the books in the moment. And I actually have to end up going back and searching in my email for this stuff, right? And trying to find, okay, but that's an email that I want. Like, that's a promotion that's interesting to me, right? See, it's a totally, totally, it's a good interview question. That's where I'm going to talk about. Like, oh, we're going to go down the path trying to solve it. Because, uh, because it's like, but, but, but what I like is a product person who gets excited by a question like that is thinking about the holistic system. They're thinking about the users. Why are the users going to care? Why are the brands going to care? How are you going to actually make money off of brokering that transaction? Mm. How are the brands not just going to go, well, I can already shove stuff in their inbox. Why do I need to pay you for that? Right? Yeah. You know, to, to like Yahoo or Gmail or whatever it is. Yeah, right? So, so like, the, like the brands actually have to make a shift. So how do you make a win-win-win product for the users, the, the stores, the platform company that wants to make a lot of money out of being this broker, yep. you know, and like designing a whole system like that. And then how do you actually drive users to that behavior? Mm -hmm. So if it really works, how do you then do the growth stuff? How do you actually bring users into it? And so like pro the best product managers can think holistically at that system level. Yep. And if they can think at that system level, then they can go do any of it. You can go work on the ad stuff. There's a lot of specialized learning. I mean, excuse me, that it takes to work on the ad stuff. Yeah. But if you're thinking about holistically, you can probably be pretty good at building that and learn the specialized learning. Hmm. If you think about the whole system, you can learn the special techniques for some of the growth stuff on top of that. Yeah. Or you can go build the core features. So let's, oh, we got like 10 minutes. So I want to make sure we cover up a couple of things. So you've, you've worked with some phenomenal leaders and founders in your career. And so, you know, Ree being one of them at LinkedIn, Ev being another at Twitter. Any any commonalities and or advice I should say to folks that you know that are working with founders maybe aren't necessarily founders themselves yeah. but obviously like you are playing such pivotal roles in the organization what what works and what doesn't when you're working yeah. for someone like that look I I feel so lucky to have both gotten to work with guys like Reed Hoffman and Ev Williams and, and I'm getting to work with them again that's like, right my <laughs> I work with Ev I'm on the board of his new company Medium like I f couldn't feel luckier um, you know. When you're working at a company, what it's what what is hard to realize is you're actually working to help that founder, that CEO, that you know set of you know board, everything else. You're working to help them realize the dream of like why they made the company, why they found it, why they did it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say like you serve at the leisure of the the president, but like in some ways you do, right? Yeah. Like yeah. like 
It's like a cabinet appointment. If you really want to go and make your own company and your own ideas and do exactly what you want, you should found a company. Mm -hmm. If you want to go and realize that somebody started this company, a bunch of people had already joined before you to go work on it, and collectively everybody's great work can help that vision be achieved, mm -hmm. it's exceptional. And the thing that, that really inspired me about people like Evan Reed and you know, I get to work um, you know, under you know, when Mark you know, was running Facebook and yeah. really growing up as a leader, like, they set the vision of where we were aiming in the world and, and made it feel so, and they, they just, you could just tell how they laid it out, how important it could be, mm. how important we all were to helping that become that vision. And you just felt that every day that you worked at one of those companies, which is like, we have a chance to make this thing great. And, and I'm in some ways gonna have to trust that person's instincts. So like the way that it worked best was when you basically trusted the founder's instincts. You're like, I wanna build this thing, but I ultimately need to get their approval to ship it. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm gonna push and I'm gonna be excited and I'm gonna like try to get them to, to encourage them to let me ship it maybe the way that I had come up with it. Yeah. But, but I ultimately always trusted that it was their decision because they're the ones responsible for the company mm -hmm. and articulating that vision. Mm -hmm. I think when you have that sort of implicit trust and they were great at always giving great feedback and always tying it back to the big vision. And when they found something they didn't like, they weren't like, oh, I don't like that, make it red. They were like, <laughs> like look, this thing we're going for, that doesn't feel like it's on brand or on mission or quite right for our users. And they kind of, you trust that they were the general protector of our users mm. you know, in this really important way. And, and you want that to spread through the company so that most decisions get made at micro levels so they don't always have to get surfaced. Sure. But I have found the great founders paint that great vision and yet can look at every detailed possible thing and be able to articulate it, you know, be able to articulate exactly why it does or doesn't feel that way. Nira Tolia, who I get to work with at Nextdoor, is another one who I just think is, is incredible at sort of like figuring out how to make things feel like they're part of the community or not. Yeah. You know, at both painting the big vision and then tying it back down to that, that product level. So now that we've both moved to the dark side of venture capital, <laughs> yep. we, we talk to these you know potential founders every day, and I'm assuming you're you're looking for some of the same things, right? In your in your investments, yeah. which is well, obviously you've invested now in Ev, which is yeah. like karma coming back, <laughs> I suppose. But uh, you know, how has it changed at all for you in terms of the type of things that you look for now that you're on the investor side? You know, I, I think what's funny about me is is in some ways venture isn't that different than what I did in my career. You could look back at my career and say one of the great things I did was interviewing at companies and, and convincing them to hire me and turning out to be great companies. So, so you know, in some ways, I think a lot of what venture capital for me is... is You're is selling a, yourself short. Is, 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 <laughs> but, but I think a lot of it for me is a perennial job interview, where in some ways, I am constantly looking to get to know companies to figure out if they're one that I would want to work at, work with, believe is just going for something so massive and so important, can really become a multi-billion dollar business, mm -hmm. has a chance and, you know, is on the right thesis, is early, has a great answer to why now, why this team, mm -hmm. what the business can actually be, why it's gonna be defensible, whether there's a deep network effect or first to mover to market, mm -hmm. whatever the thing is that makes it defensible, um, and why I think that founder can really drive the company and carry it all the way through. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's a job interview for me where part of what I'm trying to do in the conversation is, is see if I could be the best person to be their partner in building it. And you know, sometimes I'm selling myself a little bit to do it, but sometimes I'm just really trying to engage to see how well we would work together. Yeah. Because ultimately, every company that you meet is so early and has such a unique opportunity to be big that it takes a long time and commitment of actually working together to get there. Yeah. And so it's not something that I take lightly. You know, I don't want to invest in a company that I wouldn't want to work at. Because 
otherwise going to board meetings, taking the, the founders' calls, everything else would become a chore and not a joy. Yeah. And so, you know, I think about it as sort of this perennial job interview, hopefully on both sides, as opposed to a, please, sir, could I have some money? No, I will not give you money. I don't think, I, I worry that sometimes that's how investor conversations. I think it is. I, I, I like think that. sometimes yeah. investor conversations get to that, yeah. and I think it's problematic. Yeah. And, and I don't think that's how it should be. How long have you typically met a company before you might invest in them? What, you know, so far, in, in every case, I've known the founder for approximately a year oh, wow. before we invested. Wow. There's one that was a little bit shorter, but we did known him for like 15 years, so we kind of uh, yeah. did a good mutual vouch. Yeah. Um, um, but but uh, in, in all cases, and where I met them early and I got excited about what they were doing, yeah. we just managed to spend more time together, whether it was an in-person meeting at, you know, in my offices or theirs, whether we'd hang out at a conference, but sort of in that over time, then when it got time to like, this thing's working, this is the time, I knew enough about them and they knew enough about me to, to make the call. Yeah. I think most first-time entrepreneurs maybe have the misconception that when they go to raise a round of funding, they're just gonna do a road show to 10 VCs yeah. up and down, you know, well, it used to be Sandhill, now yeah. it's sort of like Soma, yeah, yeah. right? And uh, and then they're going to get a term sheet, hopefully, right? Yeah. But I think what they forget is that folks, especially like yourself, that are very product and founder oriented, yeah. like to spend time with those companies and those founders ahead of time, right? Yeah. Because it's a mutual decision that you're making to spend the next, you know, whatever, five years, seven years, ten years together. But get a divorce in the United States than to get a venture capitalist off of your cap table and out of your company. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and so, like, you would never meet a girl or meet a man and decide to get married uh, after the first date That's right. and go, I'm going to make the 20, I mean, it's like The Bachelor. Yeah. Like, like... <laughs> Most of us do not try to do The Bachelor to find a spouse. That's a great and, and there's no reason that you would want to do that for an investor. Now, you know, it is time consuming to do investment meetings. It's time consuming to hone the story and tell the story yeah. and to shape the story. And I understand wanting to compartmentalize it, but I think you, you want to compartmentalize it over time, not just say, okay, well, things look good. I'm going to go try to raise money. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, there are some investors who are great at that. And they love doing that. And they love making the short, fast commitment. Mm -hmm. And when stuff doesn't go as well as the investment, just because it happens so fast, they're like, ah, oh, well, you know, it was just a shot anyway. And I've seen investors who don't continue to engage and spend as much time. Yeah. But, you know, once I decide to join up, like, you got me for, for good and bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, uh, I mean, look, that's why, really we, good again. that's why I love you. We love the philosophy. I mean, I think it's right on. Um, we got a couple of short icebreaker questions cool. that we want to make sure we answer. So, uh, if you were to invite, we'll start. We'll start. We'll start different. Uh, favorite book that you've read recently? It's a book called The Outsiders. Oh, yeah. So, if you've read like Built to Last and these else, there's another like business case study book. It's recommended to me by Dave Morin. Mm -hmm. And what it does, it it completely changes the model of what a CEO is. So, it looks at these case studies of companies that have significantly outperformed. Mm -hmm. And its its argument is the best CEOs were how they managed capital, not product or vision or any of that. And it goes through a whole bunch of companies where they, they managed to do stock buybacks when they felt like the stock was underpriced, managed to do sales of assets um, that you know had big cash flow, especially when, you know when the stock was under when the stock was underpriced, where they had an asset they thought they could unload. Mm -hmm. um, when the stock was performing really well, they would make aggressive acquisitions with stock, and so they managed to basically 
really significantly change the price per share. You invested one dollar in a company like General Dynamics, I think is one of the case studies. In General Dynamics, you actually outperformed a ton of other companies, even I think GE, mm. because of the way that they manage buybacks and sales of, of assets and distributions and you know acquisitions. That's cool. It's kind of it's like really reminds you that fundamentally when we're building companies in Silicon Valley, we're actually building financial structures yeah. that Wall Street will value like a financial structure, and you have to think about how you manage capital. I think there's so many books that teach us that are great. You know, Zero to One is another great one I've read recently that teaches about the startup mentality. Yep. But I think this just reset my expectations on like, fundamentally, we're building financial systems. Yeah, we gotta back up a little bit. We gotta right? back up and understand that. Yeah. Uh, okay, two more. What is, if you, if you were able to invite any historical figure to dinner, who would you want sitting around your dinner table? Benjamin Franklin. Oh, I like that one. Um, That's a good one. I think there was this novelty of revolutionizing these wild United States yeah. where this set of Puritans and other early philosophers and inventors just were so creative about the, the world they were trying to set up and set in stone. and. And he just is, he's like the one that like feels like the doddering old inventor with yeah. the key and the electricity that I just feel like he, he has, would have so much insight about like how do you think about setting up a new world and as we're doing it with technology now, yeah. like we're actually setting up new constructs and new rules for society every day and, and America's lasted hundreds of years. It's like, yeah. like, like what did they do right? <laughs> I like it. We're going to set that up. Okay, last one. Um, when you were a kid, what superhero did you want to be? Uh, plastic Man. No, what is Plastic Man? You don't remember Plastic Man? I don't remember Plastic Man. Plastic Man was this those. guy who could stretch and do like anything. He was like, his body was plastic. Like Gumby? Stretch. Or like Fantastic like, sort of, Four guy? Yeah, yeah, I don't know if he was Fantastic Four, but he was like Gumby style. Just yeah. able to stretch and do everything. And I just thought it would be so fun to be able to like see around the corner and peer into everything. And it felt like close. Yeah. Like Invisible Man, Incredible Hulk, like those felt like like true superhero, like not attainable. Yeah. Plastic Man, I felt like was like almost attainable. It was like <laughs> that in this book called Flat Stanley that I was like, that's so close. It'd yeah, be amazing. We could do that. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Meet the operators.